Hello, welcome to Eye Through Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose anything on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? Today, we're going to talk about primary angle closure, glaucoma, with or without glaucoma, really, it can happen with or without. But we're going to take a bit of an approach here that sort of goes over some of the more fundamental aspects of it. I think we've talked about it sort of obliquely in some of our buddy call episodes before, but finally, a whole episode dedicated just to it. Right. And it's this episode is going to be designed so that if you have never heard of angle closure or know very little about it, then you can, we'll introduce you to the fundamentals. But if you already know a lot about angle closure, we're going to go into the more in-depth analysis of it as well. So just to describe a little bit about the anatomy of the anterior segment of the eye, angle closure is what is happens when the iris is a little too close to the cornea and can at least maybe partially or completely obstruct the trabecular meshwork, which is where fluid inside the eye is supposed to flow out. Where is that trabecular meshwork? Uh, the trabecular meshwork is right at the angle that is formed by where the cornea and the iris meet. All that stuff is like your typical gonioscopy anatomy uh, lecture. Don't think we're going to go necessarily into the details of that today. No. But it's it's kind of in the the jaw between the cornea and the iris. As I tell folks, you got to drain inside your eye, a natural drain, and occasionally it gets clogged by stuff, including your own tissue. Now, some people describe that when it happens as appositional closure, and I'll kind of go into why I don't like that term very much. But if it's like that for too long, then eventually scar tissue can form, where the iris has actually now got this little band of scar tissue adhering to the cornea, which will completely cover up the trabecular meshwork drain. And that scar tissue in this part of the eye would be called peripheral anterior synechiae, or often abbreviated PAS. And usually you get that sort of PAS from like chronic inflammation, so it happens a lot to people with uveitis. But in this case, it's just happening from prolonged contact when there shouldn't be that kind of prolonged contact between the iris and the peripheral cornea. So something that's confused me is the term pupillary block. I feel like some people use that uh, interchangeably with primary angle closure, but is that like a different thing? Is it the same thing? What is that? Good question. It's its own separate mechanism, but it can contribute to angle closure. So if you think of the angle as like the corner in your room where the floor and the wall meet. Imagine that there's a rug all over that floor and that rug is your iris and the wall is sort of, you know, right at the root of the wall, right at the base of the wall. That's where your cornea starts. So imagine that that again, where the wall and the floor and where the wall and the rug meet, I should say, that's your angle. But then imagine, you know, in the middle of the room, there's a little sinkhole. And underneath that is where fluid is coming from. So that sinkhole in this analogy, that's your pupil. And just behind 
your pupil is, in most people who haven't had cataract surgery, your natural crystalline lens. Now, you don't need to know this number, but the distance between those things is incredibly small. It's like maybe about three to five micrometers in oh, distance. Man. And that's, you know, you're basically lim limiting all this fluid flow through this very narrow channel. And if that channel gets occluded, then a pressure gradient builds, right? Where, this is silly, the design of the eye was such that the drain is in front of the iris, the trabecular meshwork, but the faucet, the ciliary bodies that are producing all the fluid, is behind the iris. So this channel, the lens iris interface, needs to stay open, because if it doesn't, then your faucet's just going to build and build more fluid and pressure behind the iris, and that's called pupillary block. But what also happens, coincident with the pupillary block, is as that pressure builds up behind the iris, the entire iris bows forward even more than it already was. And that bends that iris forward to the point where it can occlude completely the trabecular meshwork drain. So the fluid can build up under the rug, and then the rug will kind of bow forward and block off that corner between the wall and the floor. Right. And even though they're two distinct mechanisms, you, as you can imagine, if one goes completely, the other one is going to happen pretty soon after that. So pupillary block can be the precipitating event that starts off an acute angle closure crisis. Gotcha. What are a couple things, Ben, that would make that little lens iris channel smaller and smaller? Can you think of any? Um, one thing is the lens. As the yeah. lens gets bigger, it, it you know, if you only have five microns to go, and the the lens can get quite a bit bigger than that that five microns. Exactly. So we worry about this for older folks whose cataracts are progressing and enlarging in the anterior posterior dimension. It really can contribute quite a lot to angle closure via pupillary block. Yeah. Um, and then. Andrew, like what kind of eye is predisposed to angle closure? Like, is there a, you know, if someone, like, I don't know how to phrase this as a question, mm, but, no, you yeah. know, like if someone is myopic, should that raise any alarm bells about whether they have angle yeah, closure? Yeah, yeah. So you're right. Just talking about eyes anatomy itself, if your eye is on the smaller side, then everything is going to be a little more cramped in there, including the distance between your iris and your cornea to begin with. Your, I'll say your peripheral cornea. You know how when you're taking measurements for cataract surgery, Ben, or I guess when you used to, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. the uh, printouts will spit out something like an anterior chamber depth. Yeah. Like, you know, at its widest aspect, which is usually right down the middle, how far is the cornea from the lens or iris? And it's usually about three millimeters. If you're a hyperope or somebody with a smaller eye in general, that distance is shorter. And it's usually about two to two and a half millimeters. And you don't need to remember those numbers for this topic, although they will become second nature to you after you're a cataract surgeon. But that illustrates and I'm trying to demonstrate proof that yes, a hyperopic eye really is smaller, particularly with their anterior chamber. And that's just going to lead to even more chances 
of uh, prolonged contact, scarring, and closure of the angle. Gotcha. Now, can we talk about terminology? Because I've seen many different versions of like acronyms and such to represent primary angle closure, and they are very confusing to this poor retina soul. Can you help me figure this out? Sure. The nomenclature, honestly, even in amongst glaucoma practitioners has sort of been changing anyway recently. You'll see a lot of people refer to like anatomic narrow angles, ANA. Uh, people also just say, you know, chronic angle closure glaucoma sometimes, CACG, or just acute angle closure glaucoma, AACG. Actually, a few years ago, the European Glaucoma Society put together like a couple other, um, a different system for describing this. And it got formally adopted into the Academy of Ophthalmology's practice patterns. So that's what I'm going with. It's also in the BCSC. But just be just like how older terms still pop up on test questions sometimes, you probably should know them all. Yeah. What I do like about this new nomenclature, though, is that the stages that they describe are very well defined by what you see on gonioscopy or examination. So let's let's start with the first, the least severe of them, primary angle closure suspects, or PACS. And someone with that is the person who optometry is like referring to your practice just because they see narrow angles with or without gonioscopy and they're sending it to them to you for further evaluation. And if they really are someone that you don't have to worry too much about, PACS is defined by at least 180 degrees or more of iris trabecular meshwork contact such that you can't really easily see the scleral spur on gonioscopy. But there hasn't been any scar tissue formation yet, there's no PAS, and their eye pressure is fine, like it's 15 or something. And there's, of course, at this point too, there's no glaucoma. So PACS, basically the same thing as an anatomic narrow angle referral. The next one is just you know, they drop the S, they're no longer a suspect. You got full-blown primary angle closure, PAC. That you can regard as sort of somebody with PACS, somebody with at least 180 degrees of iris TM contact. But in addition, there's also high pressure or the presence of PAS scar tissue on Gonio. And that makes the next stage you know, even more obvious, primary angle closure glaucoma, PACG. You drop the S, but now we're adding a G. This was when it has all those features that we've already talked about, high pressure, maybe scar tissue, PAS, but there's also glaucoma, which you'd have to look at and find out by how the optic nerve looks. Or maybe you have an OCT RNFL or a visual field that look highly concerning to you also. Um, I mean, to lead you into acute PAC, or I'm still not sure. Maybe I should just yeah, we can just leave it. I mean, that's that complicated with, enough. Yeah. yeah, maybe I'll talk about that with uh, the next thing. Yeah, I think it's fine. Acute PAS. So there. Okay. Okay, so that's helpful to know what those acronyms mean because I'm seeing them pop up in notes, and uh, I haven't 
looked him up yet. Thank you for <laughs> saving me that time. <laughs> uh, so, you know, something that's confused me too is the existence of something called chronic angle closure. You know, in medical school, what I remember them teaching us that there is this thing called angle closure and it's always an emergency and you have to fix it right away or people will go blind. So like, how can you chronically be going blind? What does that mean? Good question. And I agree. This is a very confusing point for medical students in particular. I mean, most of most students barely get many lectures on this in general. Your lecturers are correct. There is something where really, really acute crises of angle closure can happen that can spike the pressure up to something ungodly like 50 or 60 or something. And the person is in such distress and pain and discomfort from that high pressure that they're basically coming to the emergency room, rightly so, because having a pressure that high is no good for the eye. And even after a few days at that pressure, they may have irreversibly lost vision. But it's also true that, you know, you don't have to necessarily have it to that degree. You can have some amount of mild chronic iris trabecular meshwork contact or an obstruction, but most of the system is still functioning just fine. So even if the pressure is a little higher than you want, at least it's not like 50 or 60. Maybe we're talking a 22 or 24 or something, and the patient is in no pain. So really, there's a spectrum of acuity when it comes to angle closure. And how could that be? And this is the subtleties nobody ever talks about until, and honestly, not until fellowship did some of my mentors describe this for me. There's a few concepts here. One is that the iris could, could be thought of as like a door in a door frame. And that means the door sometimes can be just partially closed and yet still air or fluid can kind of leak around the edges, right? If your door in the door frame isn't totally shut, then things can still get through the cracks. It sounds like my college apartment. <laughs> so that's one idea. But another concept that actually even a lot of ophthalmologists aren't fully aware of because it's only been lately starting to be described comes from one of my mentors, Harry Quigley, which is the concept of the iris as a sponge. And here, talking about how the iris can occlude the natural trabecular meshwork drain, that makes it sound like the iris is just a solid thing that is not permeable to anything. But in truth, we know that it is permeable to stuff. Fluid does freely pass through the iris, maybe not totally freely, but at least can. And that's evidenced by how the iris can actually change in volume and water content. And some studies have been starting to look at this using imaging, like anterior segment OCT, and seeing how the iris volume changes in a non-contracted, non-dilated versus a dilated state, which is some demonstration that, yeah, it actually is a little porous and permeable to at least some fluid. So that those concepts, which nobody had described to me before, <laughs> I think have kind of answered the question for me, well, why is it that you can have prolonged periods of, you know, angle obstruction and yet everything is still kind of simmeringly okay? It's not like full-blown acute anterior acute angle crisis. So it's a spectrum, basically. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, you know, just thinking of the iris as a sponge is very, yeah, very interesting. None of that stuff is really testable. 
So I'm sorry to make you here listen to that. But if you were wrestling with like this conceptual dilemma, how could this be? Why isn't it all or nothing? That's the reason, or those are possible reasons at least. Yeah, before I never questioned it myself, and now you have <laughs> introduced this struggle, uh, this intellectual struggle within me, and I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> A life of suffering is <laughs> right. I your natural habitat, Benjamin. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you, thank you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about epidemiology because something that really bothered me in, well, I, I think going through residency is, you know, I know in medical school, if, if you have like any ophthalmology education, it's only like, you know, maybe one or two days, but, and I remember like all the, the, the main things that one would be taught are renal artery occlusions, primary ankle closure, and like maybe conjunctivitis. So, you know, I know that because that's one of the few things that's usually taught in med school that it may seem like it's pretty common. And I know that a lot of residents, when I kind of start working them, with them, think that it's, you know, they're going to see it like every day kind of in the emergency room. But it really isn't that common. You know, open angle glaucoma is pretty darn common, but primary angle closure, especially primary angle closure glaucoma is not that common. You know, the prevalence among most races, you know, after the age of 40 is almost all under 1%, except for two categories. And these are ones that you should remember for board purposes. One is East Asians that aren't Japanese. Japanese ancestry is blessed with not having a higher incidence of primary angle closure, but other East Asians are, you know, between 0.4 to 1.4%. And then Inuit populations also have a pretty high prevalence of it, between 2 to 5%. But essentially, every other ethnic group has an under 1% rate. So remember, East Asians and Inuits, if you want to be fancy, remember uh, East Asians except for Japanese folks. Uh, I just wanted to, clear, to, to emphasize the point that you're making, Ben, that in the States, at least, Angle closure glaucoma only accounts to, for roughly like 10% of all glaucoma cases. Mm -hmm. But factoring those racial differences in is, is the reason why the worldwide rates are different. So in the US, you know, we're mostly a white country still, 10% of glaucoma cases are angle closure. But in the world, because there's a lot more East Asians in the world, it's almost 30 to 50% of all glaucoma cases. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, I know we have an international audience, so right. please take what I just said as a U.S.-centric uh, statement about the lack of prevalence of it. A few other things to know is that women are more commonly, um, uh, women get it much more commonly, about two to four times more often, uh, independent of race. So when I learned about all this, it made me like terrified from my, uh, from my mother, you know, she's like an East Asian woman who, you know, is like around the age where one might be worried about getting angle closure, but thank God she's myopic. So when I, when I, I like called my mom after I learned about this in my textbook, like, mom, what are you nearsighted or farsighted? And she was like, I'm nearsighted. What's I was like, oh, okay. I don't have to worry so much anymore about her. You're but, adorable, um, Ben. Yeah, that's, that, that's Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but I still made her see an eye doctor. <laughs> you know, that's another good point. Like East Asians are, you know, had historically, I guess, been more hyperopic. But with this epidemic of myopia that is now affecting Asia in particular, we may actually see a reduction in the rates of angle closure there. 
Yeah, it's, thank it's God. Not, it's not necessarily a contradiction. It's just an evolving change. Yeah, thank God my mom was a bit of a nerd. Though I will say that being a nerd is directly correlated with the cause of myopia is a, a big thing that is, you know, actively being investigated. It's not directly related to being a nerd, probably. <laughs> we can, and, you know, along with all this, if you have a first degree relative with angle closure, then your risk is higher. You know, uh, at least in studies among uh, chi- people of Chinese ancestry, they're six times more likely if you have a first degree relative who had angle closure. I don't think people need to remember the numbers for that. It's just, again, demonstrating people with ancestry of, you know, that gets hit by this more often, their risk for this is much higher. Right. Okay. So we talked about kind of what it is and who gets it. Let's say you have someone in your clinic and you have some suspicion or you're trying to work someone up for possibly a closure. What do you look for? So... Usually the first clue is just what it looks like to you on slit lamp exam. And there's something called the Von Herrick method of checking that, where you narrow your slit beam really narrow and then tilt it off to the side and look at the corner, the periphery of the cornea and iris to see how much space is in between there. And usually it should be like you can measure it in I guess as a unit, take how thick the cornea seems on your optical wedge (laughs) of the narrow slit beam and then apply that like, oh, that's like half a corneal thickness in space between the iris and the endothelial side of the cornea or like just a quarter or just barely like one eighth of that amount of corneal thickness. You don't have to really remember exactly how many corneal thicknesses is what, just if it looks narrower than it should to you then the next step should be gonioscopy for sure. As it turns out, the Von Herrick method, even though it's a quick kind of thing, is not reliable at all to show you how wide open or closed that angle really is. And that's been demonstrably proven from some studies. So the Von Herrick method, just kind of to clue you in, and then you have to go pursue it with actual gonioscopy. Oh, no. I threw mine out, Andrew, but how do I use it? (laughs) I was going to ask you if you remembered how to use yours. (laughs) I'm joking. I didn't throw mine out. I didn't throw mine out. I have to, I I enjoy doing gonioscopy frequently to look at our central retinal vein occlusion patients. So I I still have it. It's still in my case. (laughs) What what is a gonioscope thing lens, Ben? (laughs) Um, Yeah, basically the idea is that because of a principle called internal reflection, where um, at a certain angle, light will internally reflect through the cornea, you can't see the cornea, sorry, the trabecular meshwork, that angle directly. Like you can't just, you know, look like way off to the side with your slit lamp. So because of that reflectivity, you can't see it directly. So what you have to do is have something with direct contact on the cornea to get rid of that internal reflection. And the most popular way to use it to do this now in the clinic is use direct contact lens with a mirror on it, and that mirror helps you to see the trabecular meshwork directly. Right. The technical reasons you should be familiar with, because that is an optics question that's mm-hmm. asked on tests. The principle of total internal reflection, needing something to contact that, to break that. But what I tell patients is, I need to see in the corners of your eyes inside the light that I'm shining just goes straight in, so I can't see the corners, so I need to touch your eye with a mirror. Yeah. 
And that, there's lots of different kinds of gonio lenses. Some of them are shaped such that you can't actually press on the eye and indent it any further. But most of the ones that you should be using for ruling this out should be ones that don't have such a wide flare out. You should be able to indent a little bit to see if you can open up that angle anymore just by the process of indentation. Which also kind of clues you in that you need sort of a light touch when you're doing this. And it's almost something that you need a lot of arm support, especially if your arms are a little shorter, to hold it up there. And some gonio lenses come with a handle, some without. It's up to your preference which way you prefer to use it. Are you a handle guy? I am not. Um, yeah, me neither. Certainly lots of eminent ophthalmologists are. Nothing wrong with that. But I do like to tell junior residents to try practicing it without the handle because that's the same kind of hand skills you need for doing a lot of laser procedures. Right. So you can kind of learn how to hold something and kill two birds with one stone that way. I'll advocate for also joining Team Handleless. Screw, leave your handles at home. Come join us. Okay, you get to continue your education. I'm sorry. No, not at all. <laughs> when you're so, you want to start with a light touch so that you can press in a little bit more when you need to to indent that iris and see if it opens the angle anymore later. You also want to keep the lights dim in the room. Not bright, not too super bright, but not totally dark either. Because as you can imagine, you're not doing this on a dilated patient. In fact, you have to do gonio before dilation to really appreciate how the iris and the uh, its relationship to that angle is. And for the same reason, you also want to avoid shining your slit beam light directly through the pupil. You want to sort of rest that light off to the side at first, and then even when you bring it on to bear on the eye itself, try to direct the light into your mirrors only, into the mirror of the gonial lens only, because otherwise you're going to be manipulating and constricting, dilating, constricting the pupil a little too much. The other thing to really remember is, unlike your other lenses for looking at the retina, things are sort of only half mirrored. So, you know, when you're looking at the fundus, at an optic nerve, the macula, all the beautiful retinal vessels, that you have to think of it as mirrored and flipped. But with the gonio lenses, they're only mirrored. So what I mean by that is if you're looking through the superior mirror on your gonio lens, you're actually looking at the inferior angle. But unlike fundus examination, left is still left and right is still right. So imagine you're looking at something through the superior gonial lens and it looks like it's from your own perception. The thing you're looking at is at let's say one o'clock. That's, that means it's actually at five o'clock. And if you tried to apply the rules of fundus exam, you'd think that it was at seven o'clock rather than five, but no, it's at five. Yeah. It can be really tricky. You know, one the way that my simple retina brain remembers it is when you're looking at the fundus, everything, it's like if you're in like PowerPoint and you're trying to like flip or rotate an image around, the fundoscopy is the rotate function where you rotate things 180 degrees, but gonioscopy is the flip function where you 
horizontally or vertically flip an image 180 degrees. Yeah. So then this is uh, these tips and tricks make it sound easy, but Gonio is not an easy skill. And sometimes in some eyes, it's even harder to get a good view. If you're having some difficulty seeing a certain quadrant, what are some tricks that you can use, Ben, that are often tested about? Like, you'll very commonly see a test question asking you, what sort of maneuvers can you try to improve your view of a certain quadrant on gonioscopy? Yeah, so to, to make it simple, if there's a quadrant you can't see well in, so let's say it's like the inferior quadrant, you want to tilt the lens in the direction of that quadrant. Now, the reason that can be confusing in clinical practice is when you're looking at the inferior quadrant, you're looking in the superior mirror because the superior mirror, you know, is what bounces light into the inferior quadrant. So you have to think about what quadrant you're looking at, not what mirror you're looking in. And I think thinking about gonioscopy like that is helpful in general, like even if you don't, aren't trying to do a tilt to give you a better view. Because otherwise, you know, it can be, if you're just like looking like, okay, I'm looking at the top mirror and the bottom mirror, like, oh, the top mirror, I saw some PAS, I'll just document that. It's it's easy if you're thinking top mirror, I suppose a bottom angle to like document the opposite of what you want to document. But, um, but yeah, basically tilt in the direction that you want to look. Or you could have the patient look in the opposite direction, but that's a little tricky. You don't want your patient moving their eye too much with the standard gonioscopic lenses we use nowadays because we don't typically use a um, lubricant gel. We just use an uh, like a drop or, or just just um, not viscous fluid so that it can scratch your cornea up if you have to move their eye around too much. And I also find that patients never uh, like move it just the amount you want. They always look totally up or totally down. You're like, okay, not that much. And that big old saccade can very much give them a corneal abrasion. Yeah. Just like you mentioned, Ben. Yeah. I mean, I find this all the time with fundus exams, you know, I'm like, okay, look a little more to the right. And then like, boom, you know, like (laughs) off to the wall, straight at three o'clock. Oh no, (laughs) I lost the tear. Um, Okay. Uh, Do you want to just kind of do a quick run through of pathophysiology and then maybe just like a quick summary of management and then we can do a whole management episode. Okay. Or something. Yeah. Sounds good. So pathophysiology, we actually, just in the anatomy of primary angle closure, we uh, kind of talked about it already. It's just your eye's too small, or maybe the front part of your eye at least is too small. Your iris is touching your trabecular meshwork too much. Scarring happens. Things get closed off eventually or gradually. Now in this episode, we're explicitly avoiding all the secondary causes for angle closure. And in those, the mechanisms are a little different, but you can divide them into general, like, okay, two categories. One category, things are pushing the iris forward from behind. And that can include things like, you know, phacomorphic glaucoma, your cataract's just getting too big, or even things as exotic as like intraocular tumors that are pressing things forward. Even things like scleral buckles have been implicated before in compressing the posterior vitreous cavity of the eye so much that everything forward just kind of bows forward too. Um, In the other category, things are pulling the iris forward anteriorly, and that often is things like neovascular glaucoma, where all these sort of 
developing incompetent blood vessels are actually drawing forward the iris. Inflammation can do this too. All of this will give more time to in their own episodes because this episode is just for primary angle and already you've let me soapbox for way too long. Sorry. No, no, no. no. Yeah. I mean, we could do a secondary angle closure episode too at some point, like an NVG episode, but yeah. yeah. There's also some really cool things like you were getting all excited about earlier, Ben. Retinopathy of prematurity. One yeah. of the weird, ex- weird uh, exceptions when somebody has a long myopic, long axial length of myopic eye, but their anterior segment's really, really tiny. Yeah. Yeah, which we can... Well, we already did a retinopathy prematurity episode, but yeah, there's... I mean, it's it's worth doing a uh, thorough look at the eye to see what other bizarre anatomy might be going on. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, okay. Well, you know, we... So that that's a, I, I thank you, Angie, for a great overview of angle closure. You know, we should definitely talk about management, but I think that'll be go well in another episode because of you know how non-trivial, even non-acute versus acute angle closure can be to manage. I'll say there are at least a few things we should leave you with as bottom lines. The thing you need to do for either acute or chronic angle closure is essentially an iridotomy. But not always. And that's why we need to dedicate a huge other episode to some of the recent evidence that's come out about maybe we're doing iridotomies too much. And that's the ZAP study that just released like 2019, I think. Mm -hmm. You could be even more invasive and just do prophylactic cataract surgery too. And that's the Eagle study. So probably in another episode, we'll talk about both the ZAP study and the Eagle study. And I know that all of those junior residents out there or soon to be junior residents are probably really nervous about what do I do when I find somebody in acute angle crisis in the emergency room? You know, do the results of the ZAP study or the Eagle study even apply there? Um, And then the Wills manual or at least a lot of different sort of like the junior woodchuck guidebook of how to survive your first year of ophthalmology Mm -hmm. residency. Um, A lot of them also sort of give contradicting statements over, should you dilate these patients? Should you myose these patients intentionally with pilocarpine? Essentially, don't try it. Just go for the iridotomy if you're in a situation when you need it. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with number four. We've also got our website at www.eyes4ears.com with the number four. And if you'd like to support the podcast, a rating or review on iTunes, wherever you found us is extremely helpful. We'll be back next week to talk about management of angle closure and angle closure glaucoma. Bye. Bye.